0: Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us.
1: Good afternoon and thank you for joining us today. I'm Emma Moore, Research Associate on the Military Veterans and Society Program at the Center for a New American Security. CNES is committed to bold, innovative, bipartisan research that drives national security policy forward. We're proud to have Dr. Jeanette Godre Haney and Dr. Kai Hunter on our team as Adjunct Senior Fellows and are excited to partner with the Athena Leadership Project as they work to make military leadership more inclusive and diverse. Today's topic of discussion is on something that is not always visible, is almost always gendered, and usually does not receive substantive support from superiors or the chain of command. Caregiving is something we all do, and it has taken on greater importance as the military becomes more gender diverse, and particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic world. We're excited that today's discussion will delve into the way that these roles and support systems have played out during the COVID-19 pandemic and in more normal times. I'll now turn it over to Kai and Jeanette to introduce today's discussion and our esteemed panelists.
2: Thank you so much, Emma, and good afternoon to everyone. Thank you all for joining us. This is our third Athena Leadership Panel in partnership with CNAS's Military Veterans in Society uh, program here. A reminder today that the views expressed by us as well as all of our panelists are their own and do not represent their employer or any official positions of the Department of Defense. Today, we are going to dig into a topic that has taken on a new meaning recently, caregiving. It's December 1st, 2020. And for 10 months now, COVID-19 has swept our nation, killing over a quarter of a million people and sickening millions more with still unknown consequences. But one of the required responses to combating COVID has been social distancing, which has led to shutdowns of various times. Businesses have shuttered, schools have closed, reopened, shut down again, and Americans have lost their jobs, many of them. Since March, nearly 4 in 10 adults have lost some form of income as a result of COVID. Service industries and the gig economy were particularly hit hard. And at the same time, essential workers, from grocery store clerks to medical professionals to the service members who are with us today on on our panel, have had to navigate continuing to go to work while taking care of health and other concerns that we'll talk about today. Both the loss of income and the continued demand for essential workers has brought caretaking, especially childcare, front and center into our national conversation. Early research shows that one of the main reasons women have lost jobs during this pandemic is the demand of caring for their children that are now learning from home. Homeschooling and then also supervising virtual schools has fallen disproportionately on mothers. Uh, despite the fact that both mothers and fathers tend to be working from home these days. There is a host of reasons why this can happen, and we're not going to dive into every single one of them here today. But a trend that's, the trend is that this seems to impact women across the sectors in similar ways. And the military is no exception. Early survey research is showing that the, the demands of being an essential worker is having, has led to women resigning their commissions or choosing not to re-enlist at an unprecedented rate. COVID has also brought to light issues surrounding the care of aging parents and or ailing spouses. While all of our panelists are parents, we also understand that caregiving goes beyond parenthood. Part of our focus today is to expand this understanding of caregiving. And it showed that it is something that touches every single service member at some point in their career.
3: So while COVID has brought caregiving into the national conversation, military women have long been beating the drum that the system needs to change. Military women bear the brunt of caregiving duties just as they do beyond the services. But this problem is far from simply a women's issue. Instead, it represents the failure to develop creative solutions for the very real problems that all people face at different times. Caregiving goes beyond motherhood. Whether caring for a sick or injured partner, an aging parent, or juggling the demands of running for running a household, everybody has a period where they need to prioritize something that is outside of work. To address this, we need empathic, human-centered leadership. For far too long, the ideal, the idea of a typical worker, has been built around this notion—a notion of a man with no outside demands, obligations, desires, or interests. This ideal type has driven our manpower policies and career path structures in the private sector and in the military. But this ideal or typical worker is largely a myth. It's a myth that does not realistically reflect the needs of real human beings. And as a result, retention and recruitment of talent suffer. The system has long been broken, but today it's brokenness is undeniable. Today, during this national and international crisis, understanding how to lead human beings with real lives and real obligations is critical. Caregiving provides a lens to understand what women in particular often face. As our leaders consider how to lead us as a nation through this crisis and how to build resilience within our communities. And as the government and the US military begin to implement the Women, Peace and Security Act of 2017, which calls for more women in leadership positions at every level, considering how caregiving shapes lives and careers can help leaders more effectively implement the act and ensure that capable women are able to ascend to leadership positions more readily. Today we want to dig into these experiences of caregiving and focus on the creative solutions that can come from those experiences. All of our panelists are caregivers themselves, as well as leaders who have been confronted with policies that often lead to a forced false choice, one between meeting the mission or acting like a human being. We invited these women here today and they have offered generously to give us their time and advice because of their own stories and how they each found creative ways to address caregiving challenges. Representing the human-centered leadership that is so needed and exemplifying how caregiving is a very important part of human security.
2: So we are excited to learn from these women today, how they overcome challenges and continue to lead with empathy to create a more effective fighting force. We will begin this panel with moderated questions. We encourage you to put any questions that you have in the chat or the Q&A. After our moderated questions, we will get to as many of those as possible, and any that we do not get to, we will follow up with you via email. But without further ado, let me introduce our panel. First, we have uh, Lisa DeLillis. Lisa was born in Fargo, North Dakota to migrant workers. She graduated from uh, Del Rio High School in Del Rio, Texas, and reported to MCRD Paris Island the same month. For 20 years, Lisa served as a force deployment planning and, and execution advocate, coordinating and assisting high level decision makers with deployment issues by providing subject matter expertise for planning, policies, procedures, and operational moves. Lisa retired after 20 years of service as a master sergeant in July, 2016. She balanced two young children, an active duty spouse, her husband's now a retired Chief Warrant Officer 3, on recruiting duty, and a job in the middle of planning deployments for war. She currently supports the development of deployment software for deployment of forces for various operations. Next, we have Tanya James. Tanya is a retired Master Sergeant in the U.S. Marine Corps, retiring in 2016 after 20 years of service and multiple deployments. Also married to a military spouse, Tanya's daughter was born while she was serving as a drill instructor at Paris Island, South Carolina, and she has experienced juggling dual military deployment cycles as a parent. She decided to call Virginia her home after retiring and has been organizing for progressive causes since then. Tanya is currently a human rights commissioner in Prince William County, where she is charged with ensuring that the rights of all Virginians who adri- reside in Prince William are protected. She was most recently the state organizing director for Virginia for Biden and Friends of Mark Warner for the 2020 election cycle, was the South Carolina state director for Congressman Seth Moulton's presidential bid, and has extensive experience working on campaigns across Virginia. Allison
3: Marica. So Allie was commissioned through the Naval RTC program at the University of Pittsburgh. After five years as a surface warfare officer, including service on the USS Cowpens and the USS Howard, she transitioned to the Navy Reserve where she presently serves as a public affairs officer. She's a senior communications associate at the Department of Veterans Affairs, along with being a freelance writer in what your spare time, I'm impressed, um, and is focusing on sharing stories about dual military families and the challenges service women face as working moms, sorry. Her work is featured online at the U.S. Naval Institute, Task and Purpose, Next Gen Mill Spouse, and The Every Mom, as well as in print at Legacy Magazine and A Common Bond to ASAP Anthology. She and her active-duty husband have three children and live outside of the D.C. area. And last but definitely not least, Frances Mercado. Frankie, is that correct? Frankie is a major now, and now a or a major, and now a lieutenant colonel select. So congratulations, um, in the Air Force, she is a a 13N ICBM operator, which I have just learned is also called a missileer, and has worked in missile operations and for the joint staff. Currently, she's an Air Force Academy instructor um, in the Department of Military and Strategic Studies, teaching military strategy to cadets. She's a proud Puerto Rican and Texan who now calls Colorado Springs home. Frankie is our non-dual military panelist today, so we want to point that out so we can uh, recognize that, that we all have different experiences in this. And I just wanna point out that I I noticed a theme that all four of you are consistent overachievers. And it's one that I think uh, female veterans, um, it's a quality they display in spades. So thank you all for giving us your time today.
2: All right, thank you. And I also want to recognize Jeanette today on her official retirement from the Marine Corps. So uh, giving giving Jeanette a a big round of applause today to, to welcome to this, uh, this civilian side. So I'm, I'm here for you now. Now we're even more twins. And uh, so, so thank you. So let's jump into our, our moderated uh, questions that we've got today. And so Frankie and Tanya, I'm going to start with you for this one. You know, t- let's set the stage as, as the beginning. As leaders, as veterans, as military members, as organizers, as instructors, you, know, you all wear A lot of hats um, in your life. How do you define caregiving? So Frankie let's kick it off with you.
4: Thank you and thank you for letting me be a part of this and with amazing women I am just so in awe and honored to be sharing the stage. Um, To me caregiving is is the giving your time and your energy and everything into somebody else and that could be a child or an aging parent or whatever the case may be. Um, It can even be somebody who's not necessarily blood related, but have you have have entered into your lives and you're giving that assistance. It's about giving yourself uh, to somebody for them to grow and to be better and, and to move forward. So that to me is what caregiving is all about.
2: Thank you, Tanya.
5: Thank you. And again, thank you all for uh, inviting me. Uh, I think Frankie nailed it. So I don't have a lot more to offer. uh, Besides, when I think about caregiving, and I I think about how it has changed over the course of my career, like from being a young Marine to uh, becoming a leader and having Marines in your charge, uh, and making sure that their families were taken care of and that, you know, they did everything that they needed to do to take care of their, their, their spouses as well as their young kids to becoming, um, to becoming a, a mother myself and how that drastically changed my leadership and my ideas about putting family first uh, outside of what the culture has taught us. Uh, the military culture has, has taught us that we we should be. But again, caregiving is is a very broad idea of taking care of many different people and also taking on responsibility for for those people, whether it be a parent, whether it be, uh, you know, of course, a child or, you know, if like I've experienced when I've had friends that both them and their spouses have deployed. Uh, Just making sure I've been able to be supportive of, you know, their families while they're away, uh, taking their kids to, you know, soccer practice, basketball practice, because the because their their parents could not do it and just filling in wherever, wherever I can. Um, So caregiving to me uh, is a big part of community uh, and stretches very wide.
3: Thank you both, Um, and so this next question, will piggyback off of that and this will go for everyone. Um, What were your experiences as caregivers in the military and how did those experiences impact your careers? Um, A short question, a complex answer. So please, um, Lisa, would you like to go first? Yes, so I did wanna add off of Tanya's
0: comments for the last question that your Marines become your family. So you're not just taking care of your, your kids and yourself and whoever other family members you've inherited, your Marines become your family. So caregiving goes beyond, you know, it is non-blood relatives. So anyways, in question two, um, obviously my experience is varied depending on rank. So when I was younger, you you didn't necessarily set the rules. You were always being told where you got to be, when you got to be, when your work's got to be done, and you couldn't decide whether that work could wait till a later date. Um, so as a young Marine balancing so many things, I always felt unreliable. I'm like, are people looking at me for the work I'm actually producing? Or are you looking at me because I'm leaving? I got to go to daycare. I can't come in because daycare is not open yet. You know, there's some lag in there. Um, simple things is participating in like PTs. It's like, I can't go because daycare's not there. It's not that I don't want to go. I just can't necessarily be there. So people start to look at you differently. It does create The possibility of you questioning yourself a lot. Am I doing things right? Who am I failing? Who am I not failing? Some sections believe, like in my case, your husband can take care of the kids. You know, you don't always have to step out. He can take that responsibility. But the same thing was happening on my husband's side is like, why can't your wife take care of these kids? So, there's a lot of things managing whose job is more important is mine, you know, what critical things are you actually doing? Are you really, really working? Um, so create a lot of arguments internally to us trying to prove our self worth at work, just because we were being questioned at work. So you kind of bring all that stuff home. Um, as I grew older in ranks, I was able to say, okay, you know what, this is not really necessary. We don't have to do all this right now. Um, you try to even out with the Marines, not necessarily being their friends, uh, you're still their leader, but you don't wanna do too much where, you, you know, cause you're not gonna be around. So I wanna n- not necessarily lose confidence in them knowing that I'm never gonna be around. Um, I remember being in meetings and being, please don't ring. Don't let it be the daycare calling me because I got to step out and, you know, I got to leave and kids sick. You can't necessarily be here. So you really have two responsibilities and you can't be 100% on either one of them. And neither one of them are reliable. You don't necessarily know what's going on at work and you don't know what you're going to get hit with the kids tomorrow. So I I think I held back a lot on progressing myself because I was afraid, like I'm going to fail if I do too much of this and, and, it just affects you a lot internally.
3: I think your, uh, your comment about bringing it home, the guilt and the pressures from work and bringing that home and taking it out at home, absolutely been there. Um, okay, so Allie, do you want to tackle that one next?
6: Sure. Um, and to uh, kind of piggyback on what um, Liz said, uh, or Lisa said, sorry, um, I think a lot of my experiences have to do with the different positions I had and what rank I was at. Um, you know, my first job right out of commissioning, I was a 22-year-old ensign, and I was a division officer in charge of 25 sailors who, I'd say the majority of them were much older than me, um, had been in the Navy for several years at that point, and many of them had um, had children. Many of them came from traditional family structures with a stay-at-home spouse, um, but still wanted to be involved in um, in their families' lives. I had a couple of sailors who were single parents. I had a couple of female sailors who were the breadwinners for their families. Um, and I had sailors who were taken care of and responsible for aging parents. And so very quickly at 22, where I was coming from the world of me and only me, I was exposed to all these people, um, you know, and they say that the military is uh, is what a microcosm of what society, American society, truly is. And here, I was exposed to all these different um, people with different backgrounds and different family structures, and who they were taking care of. And I had to learn very quickly um, how to take care of them in the types of different ways that they needed to. Whether that meant that they had to like. Um, uh, they had to step out to take care of kids because daycare was closing or we had to make special preparations and make sure that their family care plans were in place before the ship deployed. Um, if they were a single parent or dual mill. Um, and so that, you know, fast forward, my husband and I didn't um, have kids till we were about mid grade officers. So we had several years of kind of a foundation to kind of build how we wanted to ensure that we were Present at both home and work, and what 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 we were able to, I like to, uh, you know, what balls were able to bounce um, at home and at work, um, and and just how, and and I think because of that, we are very transparent in the challenges that we have. I mean, my kids are still very young. I all I have three kids under the age of six, and one of them being a baby, so I we're still very much in the throes of young parenthood. Um, but we also have the um, because we're both O4s, um, lieutenant commanders, now we have the ability to be way more transparent and to share the challenges and say, like, I as an 4 have childcare struggles. I have kids who don't sleep through the night. I, you know, we've got to step out and do daycare. You know, all those things. And um, and in the hopes that it shows our sailors that it's okay to make those same sacrifices. At you know, even though you're not an 4 you know, we have these challenges as working parents, and I want you to know that it's okay to put family first and, and tackle these challenges too. And so in a way over the course of time, it's definitely shaped um, our, how we, we operate as a family and in the hopes that we say it's okay. Um, and we can balance both knowing that there's a lot of flexibility um, and a lot of coffee uh, in between <laughs> um, to get the day, to get the job done during the day.
3: All of that, yes. And
6: uh, and Frankie and then
3: Tanya, do the two of you want to go in that order? Sure. Um,
4: so it's been an interesting. It's been an interesting road. You know, I, I'm a mom of a six and a nine year old, and I remember even going into the idea of planning to have a family felt like it was another job that I had to ask permission for. So as, as a ICBM operator, we're on this thing called, um, personal reliability program PRP. And so I remember the day I got pregnant with my oldest, I had to tell my commander and she was female, um, and didn't have uh, any kids. They chose not to have kids. Um, and it was a very difficult conversation to have. I was scared. I was terrified. I was afraid that I'd, I'd killed my career and I wasn't, I was a captain at the time, um, uh, a young, a young captain I just pinned on. And so I just thought, because we had been told from an early age in our careers, like you got, you have to push off having kids because you know, you're gone 24 hours and then you got to be able to be on call and 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 you cannot use kids as an excuse. And we had single moms, we had single dads, we had the whole gamut. You had the folks who were, uh, who had kids at a very young age. And so they had younger kids, you had the whole gamut, but yet we were telling those who were about to start a family, like you need to make a hundred percent sure you're, you you were deciding the right thing. And so I remember being terrified and my husband had a job and he was not in the military. And so then it turned into, well, he got it, you know and, and, and everything's on. it, it, everything turned into, you know, you, you no longer can have excuse. And so Lisa, I know that feeling of that fear of just feeling like you failed when I said I was pregnant. Like I I was like, I already failed. Like I'm, um, you know, I might as well just, you know, call it now. And, and it's, and it's a very scary feeling to feel, how do I juggle? And, and you know, we, we have this mantra of saying like, you can do it all you know, super women and we can just be everything and we can be 110 at work and 110 at home. And the reality is we can't, <laughs> we just can't, you know, there's some times where, where we just can't have it all, but we are not having the conversations to brace us for those moments. So I, I, I know for me, I've, I've had the experience of feeling like, like, is, did I make the right choice? Am I still making the right choice sticking in? you know, and like, you know, when daycare closes and you got to bring your kids or, you know, school decides to have like an in-service day. And then now I'm bringing my kids to work. I mean, my children have been at almost all my places of employment and have sat there and, you know, and God bless them, you know, telling like a three-year-old, like, you can't, you, you gotta be quiet. Okay. Mommy's working. You know, my boss can't know you're here. So you know, it's just, it's just been, and I think we just have this, we, we forget that sometimes we forget those little moments and we don't prepare ourselves as leaders to have those conversations. I know with uh, air, with our airmen, a lot of times we have the conversation after the fact or, or we, or we tell them kind of when it's too late. And so now they feel like they failed and now they're afraid to say anything. They're afraid to ask for help. And so that's always been my biggest disappointment, even in myself, of just not recognizing that maybe we are creating a system where you have to be everything all the time to the point where people are just too afraid to ask for the help and and to say things like, I don't have childcare, you know, I need to stay home with my kids. I like, I don't do that. Like I, you know, I'm like, well, I guess they'll come with me. (laughs) <laughs> and I'll just sit him right here because I just don't think like well, I got to be at work. And I don't think to tell my husband, no, you got to stay home because he has to go to work. And and so, yeah, it's it's to me, it's always been this this balancing struggle that I feel like, you know, some days I'm nailing it. Other days I'm just epically failing. And I'm just like, as long as my kids remember my name, like, <laughs> and I got them clothed and at school, like, you know, you just look for the little wins just to get you through it. So.
3: Do they have underwear on? You know, that's the important thing. Is right? it clean? Like, <laughs> Has it, has it been cleaned this week? But yes. Uh, Tanya, <laughs> do you want to take this one too?
5: Absolutely. Uh, definitely. Uh, talk about the culture. I remember my first Christmas in the Marine Corps and uh, being away from home, I was stationed in North Carolina uh, and my family is from South Carolina and being told, well, you're going to have to have duty on Christmas because you don't have a family. So just the Marine Corps, like, or, I mean, you know, the command instilling that culture in young Marines and that, that level of resentment uh, that comes with that because, you know, yeah, I don't have a family, but... Uh, these other Marines see their family every day to moving fast forward to being a drill instructor, uh, and, uh, having to tell my command that I was pregnant and, and, you know, in the Marine Corps, fourth um, battalion is all female. That's an all female battalion. So everyone in my, in my chain of command, they're all women. And I think that that was, again, like Frankie said, that was the hardest thing and the most humbling thing I've ever had to do and definitely change my entire outlook because at that one particular uh, duty station with every single person from um, the commanding officer all the way down, uh, having such a negative culture towards um uh, female Marines who are, you know, drill instructors who became pregnant while on the drill field. First off, things happen. But just, um, so when I left the drill field and uh, I went back to the fleet, it dramatically changed my outlook uh, about families, about caregiving um, in a positive way because I never wanted Marine to experience that. Uh, Like everyone, if they want a family, they should be able to to have a family and uh, not necessarily feel that they uh, are letting their unit down. So it it dramatically changed my my outlook uh, for Marines, especially, you know, with female Marines who, uh, who became pregnant. But I also uh, made it a point that they understood that the, you know, uh, their spouse on active duty also should share uh, a part in that. Like they didn't have to choose between their career and their family. They shouldn't have to, of course, in some cases they would, and they did have to, but just them understanding, for, at least from my perspective in trying to set a culture that, you should not have, it's, it's not okay for someone to make you feel that you have to choose. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> that's, that's uh, that just to, to be able to think, I don't think I've really thought about it in that way uh, since retiring, how uh, the culture shifted for me and in my own uh, ideas of leadership.
2: Thank you. And I think that that feeds really well into the the next question. And I think Tanya is especially one of the things that I know, all of us have experienced this sense of being told that if we don't have children, we somehow don't have families. But then at the same time being told that, you know, if you choose to have children, you're you're let down and that really that mixed message that you're sent of like, you know, what, what is a family? And then, you know, how do you actually. You work work within within your your structure to have a family, and I think that feeds perfectly into our next question, which is also going to be for everyone. And um, I'm going to start with you, Tanya. We're just going to go in opposite order this time. But is you know, through, throughout that your your time? Did you have leaders, mentors, someone who modeled what good behavior looked like to you that you were able to to draw from to help in your further uh, leadership? journey here, you know, or if you didn't, like what, what do you wish you would have had in that, um, you know, in your, your initial times to help guide and shape you?
5: Right. I think that, um, when I think about it, I was, it was very late in my career when I did see it. Um, because, you know, as the world changes, so does the military, um, but it was a good ten years before I had that same culture of if you don't have a family, this is this is what this is what you have to do, um, and so there is that there was always that that resentment part of it. Um, so not until I was probably ten years in the Marine Corps that I experienced uh, really good solid leadership from both. Female Marines and male Marines, both officers and staff and COs at at one unit. Um, And maybe that's because of the the type of unit it was. Uh, That was my first time being stationed uh, with the air wing. So the culture in itself was dramatically different. And uh, it was very, very centered on families, but also centered on, on single Marines and ensuring that that they, are, they feel supported too. So it's very balanced. And I think that's where we miss the mark often uh, when it comes to command leadership is just finding a real balance in taking care of our, our military families, as well as taking care of our, uh, our single Marines or, or service members and ensuring that, you know, no one feels left out uh, because of their choices.
2: Thank you for, for that one. Frankie, how about you?
4: I have been blessed that I have had great examples of how to do it right and great examples on how to miss the mark. Um, I know that early in my career, like when I started to have a family um, or kids, right? Cause I guess my husband was always my family prior to him, prior to the kids but when um when i when we started to have kids um that's where you started to kind of see a lot of just very it was a very difficult time um because i was in ops and so what's unique about being in ops especially in the air force is that you are in a group of all your peers so imagine like high school or college like amplified with money. Like that's really what it felt like. So there was a lot of, you had to, you know, we all started having kids around the same time. So you start to see kind of how mentality started to shift. And then, you know, at the same time, we're starting to get into these leadership positions. So we start to sort of recognize like, oh, maybe we weren't being empathetic enough to our single moms out there who are, having to juggle childcare while they are working in the middle of the night. You know, I learned things as a, as a first Lieutenant and a captain about how a single mother would have to go while she is out in the middle of Nebraska, somewhere under under, you know, underground, several feet, having to coordinate somebody taking care of her kids because the childcare service only lasted till about 11 o'clock at night and then switching same thing for our maintainers, same things for our cops. And they're having to try to juggle that on their own. Um, and so what you started, what I started to notice at that point is kind of like what Tanya was saying, like you start to notice, you start to recognize things that maybe you didn't ignore because it wasn't, it didn't personally affect you the same way. So I remember, I remember seeing a lot of examples of that. Now, when I left the field and I started being an instructor, I was really fortunate that I started seeing amazing examples of individuals who would stick their neck out to say, take time to take care of your family. Take time. You have a sick child, go home. You know what I mean? Don't feel like it's on you to do that. Um, and so I've been, I've been blessed in that regard. I mean, I have great leadership. I have great, uh, mentors now who I see has made conscious choices about her career because she wanted to be there for her kids. She's a dual mill. And she said, I'm not, you know, and her and her husband have both decided we're going to do what's best for our family. It wasn't her doing it so he could have you know, become a flag officer and kind of keep going, they both made the decision that they were both gonna be there. So I've been really blessed to see both sides of it, but I will tell you where I've learned the most is kind of the ones who uh, I will say taught me all the things not to do, or taught me the type of mother I don't wanna be, an officer I don't wanna be, and the culture that is created when we start to say you have to choose one, you know, and then we don't say that to our spouses right? Or we do say it to our spouses and they're not telling us. And so now we're creating this division at home where I feel like it's all on me. They probably feel the same way. Now we're not even talking about it because we got to put a good face, right? And show and keep and keep on keeping on. It's not until you get into those ranks where you start to say something like, what are we doing? What are we saying? How are we telling somebody, okay, you have to work extra because you don't have a family. And then you start to have a family. Well, now you're, you know, You're, you're, you're no longer contributing the way you should in this unit. I mean, yeah, it just goes back to so I've been able to see the see both sides of it, gratefully. um, But I have learned a lot from those who I don't want to emulate.
2: Uh, Ali, how about you?
6: Yeah, similar to Frankie, I've had really good positive role models and mentors, and then I've had lots of um, leaders who showed me the kind of officer and the kind of mom I don't want to be. But I will never forget my—I've um, had two particularly good examples. Kind of always stick with me when I'm faced with having to make decisions or choices, both for my career and for my family. My um, second ship CEO, we were. Um, our ship was coming out of the yards and we were getting ready to go back into like a, a kind of a shore based ship, um, schedule. And we were factoring in early morning PT into our schedule. And like we had all these officers around the table and we were trying to make our daily schedule and the PT kept getting pushed earlier and earlier and, She like put her hand, and she was a she was a dual mill woman who had consciously chosen not to have um, children. And she put her hand up and she said, "What time do the CDCs open?" And all the department heads, who were all men, but um, had children, but for the most part, I'd say they were um, stay-at-home spouses. I don't think anybody could answer that question. And she said, we're not making this schedule until we know what time the CDC is open because she was thinking about all those single sailor or single parent sailors that we had um, on board. And then, and it was just, those types of things, decisions that she made and and hearing her talk through them in that even though she didn't have kids of her own, she exemplified what caregiving meant in so many ways for single parents or people who had other um, family and life circumstances. Um, I also remember she, we were getting ready to do our pre-deployment briefs. And typically those are held um, at a facility on base. And she said, no, I don't, want, you know, because getting on base requires access or guest privileges and all these sorts of logistical hoops. And she said, you're going to have that brief off base, because we have folks who have significant others and family members who want to come to that brief. And we need to make this information um, available to them. And so it's those types of decisions, um, and hearing her talk through them and, and exemplify making those decisions in for our ship, I just has, has always stuck um, stuck with me. Fast forward to now, where I'm, um, you know, a, a senior officer in my unit, juggling three kids and working, um, and I have a, a captain who is phenomenal at like he always texts me before he wants to call because he knows that at any given moment I will either be facilitating virtual kindergarten or you know picking kids up from daycare or working my civilian you know any of these like juggles that we have as reservists which is family civilian job and um, our reserve life and he always texts before he calls and he always asks about my kids and it's just those little things about always wanting to know how life is outside of, okay, we have a job to do, but what else is going on in your life to, 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 so that I know that you're okay. And what can I do to, to just help take care of you um, has, has been an incredible example of what it means to, to be a leader and just be able to take care of our, our, our folks in so many different ways. So.
2: yeah Yeah, thank you i I really you know i think that first example is going to resonate with so many folks who are out there who you know even going beyond what we think of as as sort of traditional families and looking at a lot of those untraditional families that are becoming more and more prominent and are people who are just as important to our sailors you know i think that goes back to frankie's first answer here around like anybody you need to give your time to so i think that's something that i know for our audience members is going to resonate A lot. Um, And Lisa, how about you? Let me
0: unmute this. So, I actually had two leaders in 20 years that I served. So, when I was writing this down, I, I thought about it. I'm like, maybe it was because towards the end of my career, I was more mature and I could relate with my age. And I, you know, it was more appropriate at that time for them to understand now, granted, they were probably already having children. So maybe they were in the same shoes as I was, that they were a little bit more understanding and it was a little bit more beneficial. But when I was younger, I don't think I ever had that leader that I felt was helping me out. I was always either being Scolded in a sense, or I was always failing, or you know they would look at me indifferently, so I didn't really ever feel protected, and I was too scared to ever bring up any issues. So when I did have those two leaders, it was kind of nice because for once, I think my kids actually came first because I was like, "Sorry, I can't go to your play. I I have to go do this. Sorry, can't volunteer at your school. I, I have to go to work, or I got to drive here or drive there." So um, they made it a little bit easier, you know. I wanted to get out at one point in time when I was a sergeant, right when I had my daughter. My four years was coming up. I was like, what is the purpose of staying in? If there's going to be way too much stress, if I'm always going to have to pick who's going to go first or who's not. Um, But then in the back of my head, coming from where I came from, how I was raised, I didn't necessarily want to rely on somebody for the rest of my life and say, okay, well, I will be a stay at home mom, but you got to put a roof over my head. I just didn't really see that as my future. So it made me change a little bit. Um, So with these two leaders that kind of showed me, it is possible to be a leader serve and be a well-off mom. I was able to kind of shape my brain, how I would treat my Marines when they were younger. You know, I saw their kids. I had a Sergeant right before I retired and she had a daughter And then I'm not kidding. I think she came back from maternity leave. And she's like, I need to have a conversation with you. And I'm like, what's wrong? And she's like, I'm pregnant again. And I'm like, congratulations. Um, Why are you shaking while you're telling me? And she's like, I just don't want you to look at me differently. I'm like, you're having kids. It's normal. Go for it. More power to you. Get some rest while you can. Um, so, you know, you kind of balance this. Like, why are you so afraid to announce that this is going on? It's part of life. It's part of evolution. We all have to grow at one time. And as you get older in age, I think you understand a little bit more. So you're able to help a little bit more. So I think that's how your leaders sort of help you. But you do have that handful that are just like, sorry, you weren't issued any family when you join the rent car. And
3: it's that it's a horrible personality when somebody tells you that. It is. And that feeling of failing all the time and of being nervous because you're not matching like the ideal that you've been trained to expect. Yeah, very familiar with that. And uh, and so looking at the time, we've got some good audience questions coming in. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask our fourth question. We'll go through that with uh, Tanya, Ali and Lisa answering, and then we'll do the fifth question. That's kind of a lightning round where basically you you just give a couple sentences really quick and then we'll move on to the um onto the audience questions, because some of the audience questions will bring out some of what was in question five already. So, um, you know, for the fourth question, we wanted to talk about how policies are crafted and um, how they have the impact of creating at times an appearance of a choice between being a caregiver or being a successful service member. And right now with, with COVID, one of the things that I know I heard through my husband's command at the beginning of the pandemic was, well, we all have family care plans, right? Everyone needs to exercise their family care plan. And that's not, that's not the solution, right? And it's also it shows kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of of what caregiving actually entails in a day-to-day basis in our lives. So um, it also creates some tension within units when you have parents and non-parents pitted against each other from something like that, uh, without the recognition that we all have lives and we all have responsibilities. So from your experience, what suggestions do you have to improve how policies are designed to ensure that the whole person is cared for and led and the mission continues to be met. So, Tanya, uh, no pressure there, but do you want to start off with that one?
5: Absolutely. Um, I think, I mean, you know, um, based off of what I, I, I just finished doing for this past year, uh, I know with um, Senator Warner in particular, I have had lots of conversations about him and, um, and plans and military families and and just how, and we need to look at how policies are crafted, uh, in, in, outside of the mission, the mission is always going to be there. It's always going to be important, but that doesn't mean that we can't put families first and we can't put the needs of those families, uh, those families first and have some some really hard conversations that that need to be had. And I think that that's always the tricky part about crafting policy is that people want to not dig deep. Like they, they want to say what they want to say uh, or what they need to say, but it doesn't always come out. And, and I think that, and my hope is that military families, uh, do talk to commands about about culture. They do talk to commands about, you know, command climate uh, in a real meaningful way. I think that's why, how we center it is by talking about policies uh, concerning military families in a real meaningful, thoughtful way uh, and not just a very black and white way of doing things. and. Just to be uh, intentional in it, but but definitely need to have more conversations. I think across the board, COVID nineteen has uh, unveiled a lot of a lot of problems. Uh, you know, within the military, outside of the military. I, I mean, in, in in you know, we've talked about a lot about caregiving, but we should also talk about care caregiving is is not just being a, a you know a woman problem or a woman issue, but it's an economic issue as well. Um, you know there were times when policies have provided for uh, pro- provided for assistance for young military uh, service members and their families with regard to health care and then there's been times where where that's been cut and in a time where we are uncertain about when we will be out of this environment, we need to have real conversations about the, the economic impact of care again, caregiving as well, and, and how we can be sure to uh, to make sure that those those young military members are taken care of. So for me, uh, with regard to policy and, and caregiving, I, I'd like to, to see more done um, from an economic standpoint
3: Thank you Tanya and uh, I agree completely on the economic standpoint and not being a, a woman's issue uh, I think we're gonna have some um, some lessons learned from this past year as a nation for a long time to come on that front um, Ali would you like to go next
6: uh, sure um, so I I've um, did a lot of research in the, um, specifically within the DOD, um, family leave program. And I of course can only speak from my Navy experience, but I think we're kind of trending in the right direction in term, in terms of policy in that it, I think it's, And this is just me, Ali Maruka speaking, but I think it's a vocabulary issue. You know, in the Navy, we started with um, maternity leave, and um, in DoD or Navy actually um, several years ago was the first and started an 18-week maternity leave policy, and then it was scaled back to 12 weeks, um, which is still you know in terms of American maternity leave is is really positive um, and much more than a lot of civilian organizations are able to give. Um, And so then there was maternity leave and. paternity leave. But now the Navy specifically, um, I can't speak for the other services, has primary caregiver leave and secondary caregiver leave. And so that allows for more of those um, non-traditional family structures um, to be able to take the leave with the birth or adoption of a child um, and really focus on family and and. And all of that change and transition that's happening at that point, where I think we can make even more strides as we continue to evolve, is to just changing the vocabulary so that it's not um, maternity leave, paternity leave, it's just straight up caregiver leave, so that it allows the opportunity to take the time that you need, whether it's the birth of a child, or taking care of an elderly aging parent, or, or some other family member, and you know, no, that doesn't have to be like a traditional family member, like we've, we've said all along this afternoon. Um, And I think we are, the conversations are leading in that direction. And I think the, uh, you know, DOD does not move at lightning speed by any stretch of the imagination, but I think the conversations and the decisions are trending in the right direction that we will get there. We just need to keep having these conversations and hearing these stories so that, because like Tanya said, it's not black and white, it's a very gray area. And if we can continue and keep the ball rolling, we can transition this, which will help, I think, change the culture and the stigmas that are associated with, strictly maternity leave is only for the birth of a child and for the mom, you know, and and going back to those kind of archaic, non-traditional um, structures that are just not applicable in today's environment anymore.
3: Thank you. Sorry, I hit the wrong button. Um, and Lisa, would you like to take that one last?
0: I do. Um, I kind of struggled with this question for a bit um, because you do it's very hard to capture everybody's issues. It, you know, families are so different, how they're built, how they function, what they got to do, what's on their schedule. is very different from the person that lives left and right of you. Um, but at the same time, not anybody can fit under the same umbrella when you build a policy. It's just not applicable across the board. So I feel like you would really need input from parents and non-parents. And then that got me thinking, I remembered how many times they send out command comments and policies and they're like, review it. What are you thinking? You know, they're asking you for your chop and I didn't have children at that time. And it wasn't important. Um, so I think we really need to get everybody energized and say, at one point in time, this will affect you in the future. You should probably take a look at this and see what you think. And then you really need to break down parents a little bit further. You do have single parents, you have dual military, you have parents who have full-time caregivers, and then you have parents who have a civilian spouse. So it, it affects everybody differently. And we shouldn't ever just assume that, you know, everybody's the same, um, the execution of policy needs to be taken into account like the severity of the mission. Sometimes we want to say, activate your family care plan, but do we really need to activate it now? And then the other thing is the intent is what is the actual purpose for you to build all these policies? When should they be active? You know, you can't just turn them on at any time. It's like you really have to see what exactly is going on that we need to implement specific
1: policies.
2: Yeah, ab- absolutely, and I think that you know the the that tension that you you identified between what's mission essential and what's policy essential is one that we need to dig into a lot, just as a as a country, and look at you know you, one of one of the things in my research I found that was I think incredibly important, helpful that we hadn't really thought about is it was back in the back in the '80s in France when they um, started having women on ships. Part of the actual expansion was that it was guaranteed 24-7 childcare because they knew that to qualify for certain missions, they would have to have overnight time. And just taking that as this is part of our expansion policy, not an afterthought, not something else, but fundamental to part of wanting to expand opportunities. Uh, so I think really looking at where those things line up is super important. And you hit the nail on the head with that one. And I know there's a lot of head nods in our audience there too. Um, So what we're gonna do now is hit this last question as a lightning round, just to um, touch on again, um, I'll let everyone do it since we'll do it in a lightning round, but super fast. And um, then we're gonna get into our audience questions because we've gotten some really, really good ones. And I know given the, the folks we have in the audience, we wanna make sure we hit your questions. So for this one, you know, how did your experiences as a parent while you were in uniform, the obstacles you faced, and more importantly, I would say how you overcame those obstacles. How did those those influence you for the leader that you are today? And um, Frankie, we'll start with you.
4: Sorry, y'all lost my mouse a little bit. Um, I, I will say, and, and I'm echoing what, what, I feel like we, we've all really been saying is that, you know, that one experience of feeling like I didn't make the right choice is the motivator of how the kind of leader you want to be for others. Um, <clears throat> I remember my experiences in the field and feeling like I was making a conscious career choice saying, I'm going to have, I'm going to start having children. Um, Really inspired me when after that I went and became an instructor uh, for professional military education. And I remember having female officers coming to me asking me, How did you make the choice to have children? Because I'm terrified, because I want to keep flying, because I want to keep doing the mission, and I don't want to be sidelined because I also want a baby. And I remember seeing that pain and that conflict. Even talking to me who was a mother who was thinking about having another child at the same time, I remember saying, I, 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 cannot, I cannot allow or I, if, if I can have the control, I never want a woman or a male to ever feel like making a life decision like that is going to be the worst thing that they could do for themselves and to start to think, okay, what do I do now? And immediately start taking themselves out of the equation and feeling like everything has to change because of that. How do you have that conversation? And so it taught me right away that what we ask our airmen, sailors, Marines, what we ask them to do needs to have, we need to consider what they're dealing with. And we've all prepared ourselves for those moments of if something's going on, how do you tell the signs of somebody's upset? All of those different things, but we really need to be conscious about the fact of what is their family situation like? Instead of just throwing the book at them, looking at what is it that we're doing and what is it that we need to change and so that has motivated me to just be better and being more empathetic and taking a step back and and not allow and just not having an airman ever come sit in front of me ever again feeling like they failed because they want to have a baby
2: yeah uh Ali, let's go to you um
6: Frankie, actually you just, uh, that last line that you said, just took it right out of my mouth. I I'd say having parent or being a parent in uniform has made me more empathetic to, to not only, um, um, my peers and my junior sailors, but just kind of all across the board. Um, and, and it's made me more aware of the challenges and the unique, um, uh, uh, obstacles that each of us faces. And so, um, It's definitely given me a unique perspective to look at things when dealing with my sailors and and my peers.
2: And Tanya.
6: Thank
5: you. Um, I think once you come to the the understanding that um, for me, it was the Marine Corps is going to be okay. If I, it's still going to move as it should with or without me if i have to stay at home with my daughter um i just me being able to know that i've trust I, I've, I've done my best as a leader that marines can function without me for a couple of days a day or what and and i think that's what we need to to focus on and it was a it was a male marine who actually uh had to Show me that like you you've done a, a great job at, at leading and training these Marines that they, they'll be OK. It, it's going to be OK. The, I've been out of Marine Corps for three years. The Marine Corps is still doing what it does. And I think we just need to look at it um, from a world worldview, uh, from a bigger view that the Marine Corps is the, the success of the armed forces is not going to hinge on the ability of one person to, to do their job when or take care of their family or to have to make that decision. Um, it's going to be okay. And that's something that um, even today, when I talk to Marines that I've left in the Marine Corps, uh, when we talk about it, when we, we talk about like what their next duty station should be or what their next assignment should be, uh, we have to, we have to ground them in that as a leader that, um, the Marine Corps is going to be okay. The military is going to be okay, but your family is going to be there long after your service. Uh, so do the best that you can, but, uh, and take care of your family. That's the only thing anyone can ever ask of you is to give all you can when you can. Uh, but don't overstep because your family, uh, is going to be, be there long after your service.
2: Yeah, definitely. You know, that, that who you put your time in, I know Jeanette and I have a, a book chapter coming out and one of the, the biggest you know key takeaways is that voting with your time and how you, you know, where you, where you vote with your time has, has, you know, implications long after whatever your job is. Um, Lisa.
0: It's so funny that Tanya said everything I have written down here. I was just like, bam. I'm like, she just hit all of them. So it is true. You know, your job requirements, what you're required to do, everything you got to do, it's all going to change. It's, it shouldn't be based on your current time because your family is always going to be your family. I know for me, when I would sit down and ask my Marines, I'm like, how are you doing? Just simply asking someone, you can see when someone's frazzled, when they're not really present, when they're, you know, their brain is elsewhere, you see them running in late. It's always nice to reach out to them and say, how are you doing? How can I help you? How can the change to help you or just sit and detox if you need to just just let it all out because people are frightful to tell other people what's going on afraid of being judged so it changed me to be a little bit more open and kind of pry at those marines and, and, and let them know it's okay to tell me I'm, I'm not going to jump down your throat because you say something inappropriate just let it go. You know, once it's on the table, then we can both look at it and say, "Let's fix this together. Let's work on this together." Um, and I always told my Marines is, "Do not base your future." on how your leadership is today because your leadership's gonna change, but you are gonna continue to be you for the rest of your life. You're gonna have a different leader who's gonna treat you differently. So don't make a decision that's gonna end your career and then be regretful later. So just know that, just keep trucking.
3: So thank you all. We've got just over 10 minutes left and we've got um, like five or six really good questions uh, that we wanna get through, but we're not gonna get through them all. So I'll start with, one here, um, and maybe two of you that want to answer this, take it, unless there's someone else that's got like a, have to add something too. So this is a good one. The norms of the military are still rooted in the male service member uh, with the female stay-at-home spouse. As a point of departure, that sets a cultural expectation where people with caregiving responsibilities feel othered. How do we affect or change that culture? In other words, how do we make the man with a stay-at-home spouse or the family with non-traditional, you know, family members or people with other caregiving roles that don't fit the neat parenthood mother ideal. How do we make those people feel feel normal and therefore empathetic to everyone else's experience? Anybody want to take that one?
0: So, I'll take that. So, I want to say I think Tanya said earlier that the person who was more influential to her was a male Marine. I would say that the two people in my life that changed my leaders, that changed my view on certain aspects were also males. So it's going to be very hard to change the views that, you know, men will always have someone supporting them and they can, you know, continue doing it, whatever it is that they are. Um, so I want to say that it's going to take knowing a man that's willing to step up for you to change that perspective, um, because you can be a woman. And in a sense, it's going to seem like you're just nagging and nagging and nagging. But at the same time, your points aren't coming across unless you have that man that says, you know what? She is right. It should, we should all be together. It's a family.
3: Go ahead, Allie.
6: I um I also experience a lot of this cuz I'm I'm also an active duty military spouse so I have one foot in the spouse community and one foot in the military community as a reservist but I'd say it's it's part of that conversation and changing it from this this topic from being a woman's issue to, Tanya, you, you alluded earlier, it's an economic issue or it's a mission essential issue. You know, this affects not men or not just women, but men too across the board. And so continuing to have conversations that hopefully can have impact on changing the, the vocabulary that we use and the culture, you know, and I think as, as time progresses and the very traditional family structure kind of evolves out of being the norm and we have more women in leadership and we have more non-traditional families in it across the board. I think we will reach that point where, where we normalize all of these different caregiving elements, but it's not, but we have to keep having the conversation in that this is not just a women's issue. And so expanding the conversation and discussion groups to not just having um, having women's voices, but also including men's voices. Cause like, I think we've all said that we've, we've had male mentors or, or male role models who showed us how we can proceed with our careers. And so including them and showcasing them and their experiences alongside ours um, will help propel us um, to and normalize all of these non-traditional um, uh, family types. I think COVID's going to do some of this too
3: for
2: us. Yeah. You know, I, I was about to. That was going to be some of my lead into the next uh, the, the next question we have here too, because I think COVID absolutely will. And one of the things that you know I think COVID raised is like there's there's these multiple tensions that exist. You know there are folks who are working from home because they can work from home, and they're facing one set of challenges around sort of where are the boundaries between work. Caregiving, online school, you know, all of those things in that boundary setting. And then there's this other set that reaches into, I think, a one of the questions we have is, you know, with essential workers who are required because of what they do to be in a specific physical location. Despite what's going on with the pandemic, whether that is you know frontline healthcare workers, we've seen that in, or or military folks, you know, uh, coming from Frankie's community where like there's still folks that have to sit in missile silos right now, despite the fact that there's a pandemic, or you know, aviation where Jeanette and I come from, and I know others like people still have to have to fly. So the, those tensions, there are some communities that are less forgiving, seems like the only term, but where it's a lot harder to actually be home. And sometimes in the civilian sector, there's I think even less of a understanding, often of you know missing work for for something. So, you know, Frankie, want to get your perspective on this from a military uh, civilian perspective of just the you know what really are the demands of the job that make it easier or less easy to actually stay home and miss time or find someone to fill in for you because that's often some of the the issue that if you need to miss. Somebody's got to step in and do that job. And it can be harder in some of these essential roles to find those people to actually make sure that things are done. What's been some of your experience there? And then open it up to anybody else who, given you especially having two very different types of jobs in the military, has it fallen disproportionately on one person, either culturally where it's just expected like, oh, well, somebody else can pick up the slack because they have a less demanding job. So they should be able to do it or vice versa. Like, well, we'd never, we'd never expect your spouse to, because they're, you know, they're an ex. So you should be the one who takes the fall all the time. So, you know, coming from some of those different communities, how, how have you, you work through this and, and Frankie want to start with you and then open it up.
4: Okay. Um, it has been, it's been interesting to say the least, right. Um, you know, when I can't do my job, my primary job you know, you burn the backup is what we say. So there's always somebody who's who's a backup who will do that, but that's at a cost. Right. Um, and it's, it's a cost on them. Right. But it's also a cost on you to feel like, do I want to inconvenience somebody else? Can't I just suck it up? Um, I I've made conscious choices throughout my career of not, uh, picking family first for that fear of what's going to happen could, to not be a team player, right. Not to convenience somebody else, not to ask for the help. Cause I felt like I wasn't allowed or, or it wasn't, it didn't look good to ask. Um, and so it, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to do that, especially um, especially during COVID where, you know, I worked with classified material all the time. So I could not do that from home. And it was, it was a lot because my husband at At that time, um, he was working uh, as in a gym and then the gym had to close because of COVID. Uh, But he had another job on the side where he was uh, he was able to work from home, but not really because, you know, you have two kids and now you have to do virtual school and all of that. And then I couldn't be there because my job was classified and I had to go. So so I had to balance. So, you know, and then it turned into a thing of, well, Frankie can do it. And then the other guys, you know, we can't make them do it. So they, you know, they work from home. You do all the classified stuff. So it turned, you know, COVID kind of brought out all our dirty laundry, I felt like, right? Like people were upset. People felt, you know, started getting resentful towards others. Why do they get to stay home? Why I I don't, you know, and then when you're home and, you know, Ali, I know you're experiencing this now, you feel like you just can't do both. Right. You know, when your kid comes up and is like, we're on break or Zoom isn't working. And then you're like, but I'm in a meeting. You're like trying to like do all of these crazy things at the same time. You, it, you just can't. You just, and, and unfortunately, is where you start to see they're like, but you have to like, why can't your husband do it? And my husband, uh, especially at the time, and especially now, he does financial planning. So he has to be on the phone, and he has his own meetings that he can't stop because the difference is if he stops, there's no money, right? And they're looking, and then he's looking at me like, "You still gonna get paid? Like, you better stop. You better go take care of those kids." And then it becomes this weird balance of how do I, how do I ask him to stop so I can go, but then my leadership's looking at me, but he's not in the military. You know, you're the breadwinner. You make him do it. So then it causes, uh, you know, then it causes resentment at home. Lisa, like you were saying, like, how do I, you know, who, who, who am I supposed to be loyal to? And that's what it turns into. Now I have this, this issue of who am I supposed to be loyal to? And you're absolutely right. My family is going to be, who's here after the air force says you're done. But, I want to, I want to give a good example to my airmen of being a good officer. So now there's this bounds of how do I do it? Um, so it's been, it's been a challenge in the in specific jobs I have that you just can't necessarily just give it to somebody else. And in me being in the position of having a civilian husband, that's no money. That's, that's, you know, I might as well just ask him to stop working and and that's not, that's not going to work either. So, Um, you know, all we've done really is now we switched it. Now we've made it seem like now now we're just doing a a gender reversal, you know, role reversal. And then they're like, oh my God, we have progressed. And it's the same exact problem. We're doing the same exact thing. So I
3: hope that answer your question. We've got time for about one more minute. If anyone wants to jump in there on this one before we close out. I'm, uh. I'm just saying we're living that in my house right now. My husband, who is uh, salaried by the Department of Defense, United States Marine Corps, is taking the kids running around to the different things while I'm doing this um, because 2020 and COVID. But, you know, there was a question about the sandwich generation and how, as we all age, we are going to find ourselves, if we're not already, in between caregiving for different generations, Um, parents, siblings, um, children or other family members that need our assistance. And so we don't really have time to get to that today, but that's something that we could consider for future discussions. Um, but yeah, that's kind of really where we uh, have time to stop today. So, uh, does anyone else want to add anything else before we close out? Nope. Okay. Um, thank you all so, so much for our, our panelists for joining us today. It was fantastic to hear from you and talk to you and, um, It also, I wish we'd all met so many years earlier because I think that many of us went through this journey without having other women to, or other parents or other caregivers to talk to and bounce ideas off of. Um, And I think we're feeling that now and hoping to be a little bit more of that for the generations that follow. So thank you all so much for being here today. Thank you to our audience members for joining us. I know we had a number who registered to get the podcast later because they couldn't make the time because December is a crazy month. So thank you as well for CNAS and the Military Veterans and Society Program, for your support of our work at Athena, for what we do, and for your your continued efforts to elevate the stories of veterans across America. Um, I think Kai and I both believe very strongly in the power of storytelling to get a message across uh, and to change minds and build more empathic leaders. So this work is incredibly important. Thank you all so much for your support. I'll turn it back over to Emma.
1: I want to add my NCS's and thanks to Lisa, Allie, Frankie, and Tanya for participating in this conversation and sharing your story. It was so powerful to hear the ways you juggled myriad demands and despite numerous hurdles, accomplished so much. Thanks, of course, to Kai and Jeanette for framing the issues so thoughtfully and navigating us through this discussion. For updates about future events in this series and others such as our Race in the Military discussion series, follow at CNASDC on Twitter or sign up for emails by visiting cnas.org. Let's keep this conversation going and everyone have a great rest of your week.
0: You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook